Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. A lot of people worry about whether they're really happy. Mill is saying that's a very problematic thought. You can't evaluate your happiness in terms of a particular sort of moment of psychological or emotional kind of balance. You have to evaluate it as a whole. A bit like going out on a Saturday night. If you go out to be happy, you'll probably fail. If you go out to meet friends, to talk to people, you know, to have a drink, to engage in a range of experiences, you'll have a much more satisfying time than if what you're trying to do out of every kind of moment of that period is to maximize the amount of happiness that you receive. We're looking for a holy grail without really recognizing that there is, in that sense, there isn't a single holy grail. What there is is our lives and what we make of them. And the more rich and diverse, the more plural the objects we pursue, the more we get involved in activities that take us out of ourselves and involved with others, the richer our lives will be. What is the secret to happiness? And do we need to look beyond ourselves to find it? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to wrestle with two great imaginations and minds. One a philosopher, the other a novelist. Two writers whose words and ideas expertly force the reader to question their understanding of the world. Dr. Carol Jones and Dr. Eve Patton discuss the pleasures of a classic Ali Smith. And Professor Mark Fulp from the University of Warwick explains why John Stuart Mill deserves his high-profile ranking in the canon of Western philosophy and literature. This is a show about connection and relationship, duality and challenge, multiple perspectives, unconventional narratives and some dazzling writing. But first, has Scottish novelist Ali Smith reinvented the novel? Ali Smith is arguably one of the most distinctive, original and playful writers coming out of Scottish literature today. Born in Inverness in 1962, Ali's curious reads artfully break down sexual stereotypes and categories and refreshingly offer the reader a more fluid sense of sexual identity and narrative. Audacious does not come close to describing Ali Smith's hugely inventive writing style. Smith's notable reads include Hotel World, Girl Meets Boy, Free Love and Other Stories and The Accidental. In 2014, Ali Smith's sixth novel, How to Be Boat, won the Goldsmith Prize, the Costa Book Award and the Bailey's Prize for Women's Fiction. So is Ali Smith the natural inheritor to novelists such as Virginia Woolf and James Joyce? And has she made modernist writing somewhat mainstream? Well, tonight in Talking Books, I've selected two terrific women who know a lot about innovation in fiction. Dr. Carol Jones is a lecturer in English at Edinburgh University. Carol is currently working on James Kalman's fiction. Professor Eve Patton is an expert in 20th century British and Irish writing and is the co-director of the MPhil in Irish writing at Trinity College Dublin. I asked Eve, is Ali Smith just too smart for the common reader? Well, can you be too smart for the common reader? I mean, I think that the word to use might be challenging. I think she just presents this tremendous challenge. And if you pick up an Ali Smith novel, you've got to be ready to tackle it. The great thing is there's always a story there. So even if there are tricks, there's the pushing of the boundaries with the narrative, there's all that risk-taking she does with form and ideas and philosophy... But at the heart of it, there are always human relationships Mm. and there's always a story. And at least you can, let's say, have a soft landing on that if the other stuff goes over your head. And so much of it, you know, still goes over my head. And I'm thinking, what on earth does this mean? But I think there's always a level you can find where she remains readable to everybody. Carol, Ali Smith forces us to slow down and to appreciate her writing. She's playful, she's bold, she's unbelievably energetic. But within all of that, you just have to slow down and savour it almost, don't you? 
I think you do. I think I think she forces you to slow down with her kind of narrative jumping from time zone to time zone, character to character. But I think her writing is also deceptively simple that you can get completely drawn in and you've read 20 pages before you realise, oh my God, I have to go back and find out what that idea is she's getting that year. So I think she does make you slow down, but she also, the richness of the prose just forces you on, basically. You want to continue reading. Well, I do anyway. Do you think it's fair to say that she's made modernist fiction sort of trendy or certainly made some broad range of readers read it? I think that's a very astute comment. I think that's actually quite true. I think one of the huge influences on Ali Smith is definitely Virginia Woolf. And you find in her work that she uses a lot of narrative strategies that Virginia Woolf uses, for using brackets, for instance, to talk about great life events while she uses completely poetic prose to talk about outside of those events. And I think modernism was all about a more complicated relationship with reality and a kind of engagement with consciousness. And I think people are are looking for that at the moment. I think people are ready to read more complicated fiction from that point of view. And modernism is also about adventure, Eve, isn't it? Well, I think it's modernism is one of those words where it means so many different things and we need to narrow it down. Virginia Woolf's presence in Ali Smith's work is just towering. It's huge. Mm. But I would make a claim for a later school of influences, the metafiction writers of the 1960s, and in particular Muriel Spark, you know, another Scottish writer who really did, again, push the boundaries of the novel and perhaps write in a more minimalist way than Virginia Woolf. And that's something I can see Ali Smith picking up. She's written about Muriel Spark and the games she plays with time and narrative, using flashbacks, using omissions and, and, and leaving things out that you think you need to know, doing very, very strange things with chronology. That's all from the world of Muriel Spark. So there's a kind of, we think of it not really as even being British, it's more a continental kind of metafiction, playing with fiction itself, that I think comes in the wake of Virginia Woolf and has been updated. And Ali Smith takes it one step further and and does yet more with it and adapts it to an age in which we have completely different concepts of reality. And I think Carol's quite right. Modernism renegotiated how we thought about reality. Ali Smith has to write about a world where our reality is based on the internet. It's a digital reality. And she writes in so many of her novels, she writes about that world as well, which, of course, Virginia Woolf never had to face. Mm. So I think that that's a kind of updating that that she's achieved brilliantly. I'm going to put you in a tough position now, Eve, and ask you to describe her latest award-winning book, How to Be Boat. Would it be fair to say that it's almost impossible to describe? I'll have a go. How to Be Both is a novel in two parts. It tells two stories. And one of the stories is that of a young girl called George who's just lost her mother. So it's it's a very poignant, uh, really a, a heartbreaking story of how she has to adapt to this situation. And then the second story is about a Renaissance artist in Italy. And the two stories inform each other, they touch on each other, and yet they're independent of each other. So we've got a very odd setup to begin with. And then, of course, we have this, is it a trick? Is it a game being played on us? Depending on which version of the novel you buy, you might get the stories in a different order. Do you begin with the contemporary and move to the historical? Or do you begin with a historical story, the 15th century story, and then move to the Mm. contemporary? And that's something, I mean, other novelists in the past have played with those ideas about breaking up narrative chronology. But here it is in, in this, again, very challenging form. So that's been something that the novel has done, I think, as part of its brief or its attempt to make us think about history. How do we understand history? What comes first, the here and now that we can see? or all the layers that are beneath us and behind us. And it's something that Ali Smith asks, both at a simple level from a child's Mm -hmm. point of view, but also in a very complex way where she looks at schools of Renaissance art and particularly the world of the the fresco Mm -hmm. and these layers of painting which are found underneath other paintings Mm -hmm. to ask about priority. What is the real world? Is it everything that's been or is it simply what we can see on the surface now? And Carol, the interesting thing is she really playfully puts those questions. It's not all very dark or too serious in ways. She's well able to address big human problems, but does it in a very playful voice. The dialogue is tremendous. Yes, I think you're right. And I think he's right to point out the, the kind of child's view of the world. She, she uses a, a lot of young figures, children, 10-year-olds, teenagers, in a lot of her writing, a lot of her novels. 
and she has said that she deliberately uses these voices to, to get a kind of defamiliarised view of the world, a kind of fresh aspect on the world. As a matter of interest, what way did you read the book? Did you start off with George and her mother or did you start off in the 15th century? I started with the, in the 15th century with the Renaissance section with, in... with my book. So I had a kind of normal chronology. Oh. So I didn't have the experience of reading that chronology backwards, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, that's interesting you say that now because it's quite funny. When myself and Eve were talking earlier, we both read it with George and her mother first. Right, right. And yeah. I loved both voices and I, I loved both sides of the novel. But there was more fun for me in Italy than there was in England. I find it so much more vibrant. But yeah. Eve, you you felt the other way around. You said that if you had started within the 15th century with Francesco's voice, you would have possibly maybe even stopped, would you have? I think I found that narrative much more difficult. Mm. It's full of quite difficult illusions and knowledge and classical mm. learning and very interesting, mm. but again, quite fresh references to the world of art and mm. painting that you have to tackle. I mean, it's like mm. a big allegory mm. that you have to start to decode. Mm. And I think it's tricky too because the artist's spirit in the second half of the novel if you've read it that mm, way around, mm. knows more, I think, than George does mm. in the first half of the novel. Yeah. So he or she sees more, is aware of more, has a better window into the present. So I think, Carol, I think I read it the right way around. I think you <laughs> might have to go back and reverse engineer it. Have another go. Well, I think, as, as somebody has said, it's a novel you have to read one and a half times yeah. to get the full effect of it, definitely. But is that not what art is? But I'm just wondering, you have to really wrestle with this book and not everyone is up for that type of fight sure they're not wrestle with it Mm. well i think you can read it on so many different levels you can read it on on the surface level of a you know half of it being a very sad story about Mm. this this young girl's tragic loss of her mother or as a playful story of Mm. um this cross-dressing artist of the 15th century and this is a circular narrative as well because mm. the end brings you back to the beginning both sections are called one mm. so there's there's no kind of narrative hierarchy going on they, they keep you going you could keep going round and round the narrative i think the the heavy philosophical questions i think she brings them into the, this playfulness mm. because they're questions that she feels we need to be addressing right now particularly our relationship with technology you mentioned the internet earlier which comes into in an askance way into a lot of her novels but i think she she is worried about how alienated we are from reality and from each other because we experience everything we understand everything through this kind of mediation and a lot of her writing is about trying to overcome that mm. gap definitely challenging or questioning that gap but overcoming it as well to create new relationships between ourselves I think this novel is is very much in that vein when we have to like as you say we have to work hard to make the relationship between the two halves of the novel Eve how well does she write grief oh it's it's very poignant I think we have this girl's confusion her her inability to fit together the jigsaw that the sudden loss of her mother has left her with. And and this happens in quite a few of Ali Smith's novels, particularly the loss of a mother, you know, of a child at a relatively young age. There's a moment in How to Be Both where George is watching a very crude television advert and it's got, I think, dancing bananas, advertising toilet cleaner or something like that. And she watches this and, and just says, I can't understand how this can be in the world. And yet my mother isn't in the world. And she's trying to measure blocks of time. How long has it been? How long will it be? This time next year, what will I be thinking? It's an absolutely brilliant and and yet a heartbreaking expose of, of the world of grief. And I think there are different kinds of grief that Smith deals with brilliantly in, in other places too. In her novel, The Accidental from 2005, there is uh, the loss of a girl at school who is the victim of online bullying, school bullying. And that grief registers right the way through the novel in its effects on various characters and particularly one of the boys who feels responsible for for the crime, in fact. And it's very brave to take something like that on and look at all the ambiguities surrounding it because at times 
George in How to Be Both mm. doesn't deal with grief very well. She's seeing a counsellor who's got the name of Mrs. Rock. Mm. So she makes lots of jokes mm. about, you know, I'm between mm. a rock and a hard place mm. and so on. But she's cheeky mm. to her. Mm. She's rude to her. She's obstinate and stubborn. She sits in silence. Mm. She's not naturally good at grief. Mm. What child is? Mm. And it's one of the best portraits I've, mm. I've seen in, in mm. quite a long time. I would imagine that any mother would like to have such a good relationship that George has with her mother are certainly how Ali writes it. Well, I think one of the great things about the female characters in Smith's novels is mm-hmm. that they're allowed to be clever. They're mm-hmm. allowed to be intelligent. And in the mother-daughter relationship that you see in this novel, you have a young girl who's, who's very sharp, engaging intellectually mm-hmm. with her mother, mm-hmm. who's also very sharp, politically aware, informed, mm. both of them very good with language, very verbally dexterous, mm. and they're wisecracking mm. and they're punning and they're pointing out flaws in each other's mm. grammar. How mm. often does that happen? You know, that women mm. characters are not just seen in terms mm. of what's our latest emotion, mm. you know, what what kind of crisis are we in? But they're, they're seen to be ludic and clever and informed in that way. And I'm delighted with that. I think it's just a, a terrific relationship. Do you think, Carol, that men get a hard time in their books or certainly don't get the great roles? No, I don't think that, actually. I think I think Eve's absolutely right that in this novel, in mm. the How to Be Both, there are two fantastic mm. mother figures in this novel. And I think if you look at kind of recent Scottish fiction, mm. for instance, from the, the 1980s onwards, there's a bit of a dearth of good mothers. There's a great preoccupation with fathers, and I don't know whether that brings in the national question of writers and women writers dealing with a kind of the patriarchal nature of, of nationalism, for instance. And it's great to have these great mothers in this novel. But she writes great male characters as well. If you t- Her last novel, which was called There But For The, had a fantastic central character. He's actually, the book is, is structured around this, this character. He's one of these intrusive strangers. He goes to a dinner party, and halfway through, he goes upstairs and locks himself in the spare room of these strangers that he doesn't know. And he doesn't come out for months and months. His name is Miles Garth. And, he, and there begins to grow a, a kind of group, a kind of fad around him, where people become obsessed with this, you know, this stranger in this room. It's almost like a cult, and he just disappears in the end. He's a fantastic character. There's some fantastic mm. male characters in that novel. I think she's very pro-human, mm. actually. Mm. I don't think she, she sits down to write female characters, male characters. I think she's all about breaking down the boundaries yeah. between the gender, between men and women, between youngsters and old people, between gay and straight. Mm. So I think men get an all right deal yeah. in her novels, actually. Well, she certainly forces us to question what it is to be human, I would think. What do you think, Dereve? I think so. I mean, it, it stops mattering in a way. You stop thinking, oh, there's a strong female character because it goes beyond that point. One of her early novels was called Hotel World, and it's the story, it's a portfolio novel of, portmanteau novel rather, of five separate stories about five separate characters. They happen to be women, but after a while you're not aware of that, and you're not looking for the male lead, the male protagonist, the male influence coming in, because they interact in such interesting ways with each other. And I think that that, again... It's a really subtle achievement in Ali Smith's work that she's taken us beyond expectations of, say, the normal romance plot, the normal family saga, into quite a different zone in thinking about human relations. How hard do you think she works at it, though, Eve? One of the things I think is telling is, and of course you find this sometimes with very strong novelists, that she's also worked as a journalist, And she's also, of course, a literary critic. Mm. You know, she's written essays on other writers, on writing. I think that she may at times wear her learning quite lightly, but in fact there's real strategy Mm. in what she does. You can see the craft. Mm. You Mm. can see the careful planning of the structure of of her novels. I think when people talk about modernist stroke postmodernist writing, they expect some kind of blurting out of a stream of Mm. consciousness Mm. that just somehow comes out fully formed and and doesn't have to be worked on and shaped. But that's not Smith. Mm. These are art novels Mm. and they have been Mm. crafted and prepared and edited. Mm. But with the journalist's eye at times, Mm. she's very economic as a novelist. Mm. She doesn't go on, Mm -hmm. which is a great thing. Do you think How to Be Both is her best? That's a hard question. Mm. I, I do, in terms of the philosophical ideas and putting mm. them into a narrative and, and challenging them and complicating them, especially in terms of relationships, I do think it's her best novel so far. But I, I think they're all brilliant. I think they're all very good. Do you think she can do better, Eve? 
More a question of, you know, where does she go from here? Mm. What does she do next? Yeah. Because a lot of the, the ideas that are current in her work to do with gender, to mm. do with sexuality, mm. to do with philosophy mm. and history, mm. to do with mm. time, mm. she's worked through mm. a lot of those now. Mm. And I'm, I just yeah. will be fascinated to see where she can take the yeah. novel mm. and at least, let's mm. say, she's rejuvenated the mm. novel because, mm. it, you know, every so often it does get mm. tired. Mm. It does need a, a, a distinct voice to force it into a different guise. And uh, let's see what she does next with it. I might get you to end on a reading. What would you like to pick from? I've uh, chosen a bit from George's narrative and, and she's gone on holiday with her mother simply to see the frescoes in a palace in Italy by the artist. And what's great to see in this passage and in this section of the novel is what it's like when two clever characters mm. look at pictures and they don't really understand them. They have to piece them together and try to make sense of them. Yeah. And so it's like us looking yeah. at this novel. We have to put it together and make sense of it. George has a closer look at the other picture wall. Its figures are just not as beautiful. There are creatures like that giant lobster there, but they're nothing compared, say, to that horse on that wall looking out almost directly, whose eyes tell you he's not at all sure about having that man on his back. There are people and flowers here too, even people covered in flowers, but they're less attractive or more grotesque than the people there on that end wall, where the horses get fatter as the skies get bluer. Is it meant to be the seasons? Is it? She goes back to the good wall. It's like everything is in layers. Things happen right at the front of the pictures and at the same time they continue happening, both separately and connectedly, behind and behind that and again behind that, like you can see in perspective for miles. Then there are the separate details, like that man with the duck. They're all also happening on their own terms. The picture makes you look at both, the close-up happenings and the bigger picture. That was Professor Eve Patton from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin and Dr Carol Jones from Edinburgh University. How to Be Both by Ali Smith is published by Penguin and retails for in around €13. Okay, coming up next, we're going to stick with the theme of imagination and meet with one of the greatest exponents of individualism, the philosopher, economist and political thinker, John Stuart Mill. Thank you. 
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's great to have your company this evening. Without doubt, the British philosopher, economist and political thinker John Stuart Mill's ideas on liberty, utilitarianism, government and women have profoundly influenced intellectual thought and debate over the last two centuries. Classics such as On Liberty are central to the liberal tradition and I think it's fair to say Mill's ideas on the development of the human character and human flourishing are as relevant today as they were in mid-19th century England. But are there tensions in this great writer's work? Was John Stuart Mill an inconsistent thinker? And how did his philosophies on punishment, liberty, toleration and women change after he fell madly in love with Harriet Taylor, a married woman with three children? Professor Mark Phelp is a British political philosopher and historian of political thought. Mark holds a chair in history and politics at the University of Warwick. Mark's notable reads include... Political Conduct, Reforming Ideas in Britain, The Political and Philosophical Writing of William Godwin and Thomas Paine. Well, Mark has just edited the Oxford World Classics, John Stuart Mill on Liberty, Utilitarianism and other essays with Professor Frederick Rosen from University College London. And in his introductions writes, Mill's reflections produced a long period of intellectual uncertainty, which he referred to as his mental crisis. We should, however, be wary of identifying his emotional with his intellectual crisis. As his autobiography rather quietly shows, Mill suffered depression on many occasions in his later life. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk to Mark. I asked him how radical a thinker was John Stuart Mill. Mark describes Mill as paradigmatic, one for the modern period. So I think it's paradigmatic for the modern period in a number of kind of quite subtle ways. Many of the ideas he had clearly relate very much to the middle of the 19th century. But the way in which he approached problems, the pluralism of his kind of uh, philosophy, his recognition of the importance of a sound sociological and historical understanding of conditions, those things, it seems to me, build towards positions in contemporary liberalism, quite sophisticated positions in contemporary liberalism, which revolve around the fact that we value lots of things, but that then produces multiple conflicting objectives for us. And we need ways of resolving the conflicts between those things and making decisions when, when we can't have everything. We have to work out what we really want and what's really appropriate for this situation. And that's the kind of thinking that I think Mill does particularly well. Do you think in some way he was a rather inconsistent thinker? Because if I look at his range of essays, there are some tensions in his work in terms of the arguments he was putting forward. Do you think he was maybe just developing through the years and working things out and relating it to his own experience of life? Or what do you think was at play? So he wrote over a very long period of 30 or 40 years, and he wrote a huge amount. But the essays in this collection are all from a relatively circumscribed period from the end of the 1850s into the early 1860s. People, particularly philosophers, want to say, so they must be consistent. And if they're not consistent, then you know, Mill is a failure as a, as a philosopher. But actually, he's doing different things in the different essays. So they don't sit comfortably together. In particular, representative government and on the subjection of women are very much situated and written for the experiences of government and the experiences of women in the 1850s and 60s. They're they're very focused on those kinds of concerns. And it's a mistake, I think, to read them as setting out a view for all time on either of those subjects. Utilitarianism is a major piece of meta-ethical thinking, but on liberty is actually, again, a more pragmatic a set of questions about what now should we be protecting in order to ensure that the best outcomes become possible within the society that we live in now. So yes, there are tensions between them, but those tensions arise from the fact that they're doing quite different things. How much did he borrow from Jeremy Bentham? Maybe borrow is the wrong word. How much was he influenced? Because utilitarianism was not just Mill's idea. It had been developed for some time before he came out or maybe publicly declared it his own. Yeah. Well, the principle of utility goes back quite a long way into the 18th century. The idea that happiness is the end goes back to the kind of the appropriate end to, to pursue goes back to the ancient Greeks. 
Bentham tried to systematize it, but he didn't call the system utilitarianism. He simply sort of used utility as the kind of standard. Mill felt some, I think, justified kind of pride in thinking that he'd coined the term. But much of what he does is actually a working away at and an attempt to refine certain positions that he found in Bentham. Now, that doesn't make him entirely derivative of Bentham. He's raising questions that Bentham didn't raise, like qualitative differences between pleasures. He's, he's sort of thinking about liberty in a way that Bentham didn't really think. He had a crisis in his early 20s. And I know his upbringing was rather austere. His father was very emotionally cold. I think he said something on the lines of that he was deficient in tenderness. Yeah. Could it be argued that some of his emotional problems or the depression he suffered in life, certainly his big breakdown in his early 20s, formulated his understandings of utilitarianism and the human development and flourishing in the world? So in his autobiography, which is a complex text, he does say that, you know, in a dull state of nerves such as everybody is occasionally liable to, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself, suppose that all your objects in life were realised, that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you were looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instance. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered, no. And it's at that moment that Mill was saying, taking pleasure as the objective is in some way misconceived. It's in the pursuit of objectives that we gain the greatest kind of happiness, the greatest kind of sense of satisfaction and so on, rather than in their realisation. Now, a lot of philosophers have taken this as the this signal moment in which he breaks from Bentham. But I think that's a mistake. He stays very much on board with Bentham, but he wants to focus on a different aspect of, of everyday life than Bentham does. He wants to focus on the processes and on the intermediate goals that, that make up our lives. So that utility, rather than being the direct objective that we pursue on every given occasion, becomes a more distant standard by which we evaluate overall the quality of life rather than directly the quality of any particular objective. Now, Mark, I'm going to throw a quote from Mill at you, and I hope that's okay. Mill wrote that in the process of active engagement, we make our lives our own. We become self-directing agents rather than sheep. Can you tease that out with me? Because there's all sorts of ways of understanding that. So one thing it's worth saying is his education was extraordinary. His father taught him Greek at the age of three. By the age of eight, he was teaching his siblings Latin. And Throughout his autobiography, there's a worry in Mill's writing about how far he's just become the object or the the kind of the product of his father's education and, and sort of his manipulation of him. Now, for Mill, that would be really kind of damaging. We are what we are, not simply by being the product of our particular circumstances, but by being able to react against those circumstances, to choose our objectives, to make certain things our own objectives rather than things that we've simply inherited from other people. So Mill has this very powerful sense that active character, that is going out in the world and pursuing for yourself, identifying for yourself the kinds of goods that you think are of most value, that that's much more important to him than passive character, which is simply responding to the stimuli and the, the kind of conditioning that much education and upbringing involves. So in essence, or put simply, agency, making decisions, making the choices and acting on those choices leads to the good life. In fact, it is the good life. Not just that it leads to it, it is, that is what the good life involves. And then that transcends into happiness into pleasure, into all sorts of things, isn't it really? So in many respects, happiness and pleasure just are another description for leading that sort of life. It's a brilliant way of understanding happiness, isn't it? It, It's so broad and so obtainable, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But it's also, a lot of people worry about whether they're really happy. And Mill is saying, that's a very problematic thought. You can't evaluate your happiness in terms of a particular sort of moment of psychological or emotional kind of balance. You have to evaluate it as a whole. And in that sense, he's very much influenced by Socrates and the kind of the ancient tradition of thinking that life has to be assessed as a whole. And that happiness rather than simply, you know, it's a bit like going out on a Saturday night. If you go out to be happy, you'll probably fail. If you go out to meet friends, to talk to people, you know, to have a drink, 
to engage in a range of experiences, you have a much more satisfying time than if what you're trying to do out of every kind of moment of, it, of that period is to maximise the amount of happiness that you receive. So, Mark, we're really coming at it the wrong way around, aren't we? And maybe we're asking the wrong questions and not even understanding the question that we're asking, <laughs> if that makes sense. In terms of happiness, that's absolutely right, I think. We're looking for a holy grail without really recognising that there is, in that sense, there isn't a single holy grail. What there is is our lives and what we make of them. And the more rich and diverse, the more plural the objects we pursue, the more we get involved in activities that take us out of ourselves and involved with others, the richer our lives will be. But we don't do it so that our lives are richer. We do it because each of those activities has intrinsic satisfactions and intrinsic value. And Mill thinks very much that we should be sort of reaching beyond ourselves, partly because if we don't reach beyond ourselves, the kind of goods we obtain are actually pretty tawdry and, and sort of slight. Do you think he was one of the greatest defenders of the individual and individualism in terms of how he understood how society should support the development of all individuals and flourishing of individual character? Absolutely, but it it is important to to emphasise that he was very profoundly influenced by a whole range of European thinkers at the same time, people like Humboldt, Tocqueville and others, Saint-Simon Comte, And in his individualism, part of what he was doing with that was saying, at this particular moment, the thing that we're most subject to is the tyranny of majority opinion. So his emphasis on individualism is an emphasis that was written for that particular context in the middle of the 19th century. His thought, I mean, which you find in his earlier essays on the spirit of the age and civilization, is that he was living in a transitional period, that the French Revolution had, in many respects, wiped out the influence of aristocracy. But one of the results of the French Revolution was that in many countries you got the domination of the mass. And Mill had real reservations about that because he thought that it interfered with the variety of life that could be lived in society, that it tended to be oppressed by the majority. And he was unhappy with it because he thought that, as did most of his kind of contemporaries, that the masses needed educating in order to get the most from their lives. So in that sense, he's a bit of an elitist and that the defense of individualism is in part a defense of a set of, at that period, a set of elite values. But there's then a question for us about how far we think individualism should be our holy grail rather than thinking, well, you know, it's important to us, but you can take it too far in any given culture. And Mill was really aware of that. I mean, he would have, he was very much influenced by Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which did place real concerns about individualism at the heart of the kind of text, that he was worried that, that as we became more individualistic, we'd become more egotistical. As we became more egotistical, we'd withdraw from the public domain and look after our own interests only, rather than pursuing the interests of others. And that sort of individualism is a concern for Mill doesn't want that kind of thing, but he does want the defense of the kind of liberties that we need in order to live our own lives. He just has a richer set of understandings of what our own lives could look like. Can I ask you, Mark, about his relationship with Harriet Taylor? It's riveting stuff to read about. She was married, three kids. He, I think his mother and his sister practically yep. excommunicated him from the family when it became clear what his intentions were with Harriet. And that after Harriet's um, husband died, that they lived together and were very happily married. I'm just wondering about that relationship and how influential she was in his whole understanding of, I suppose, emancipation of women, his political writing on women, the subjugation of women. She was huge to his life, wasn't she? She was an enormous figure in his life. She was. And, and at the beginning of On Liberty, he makes absolutely clear that... He dedicates it to her, doesn't he? Exactly. And in many respects, they probably wrote large parts of it together. Um, and he refused after her death, because uh, it wasn't published before her death, that she refused after her death to change the text that we'd, they'd agreed on, despite the fact that neither of them had been completely satisfied with it when they'd, they'd finished it. But understanding that relationship is, I'm afraid, sort of... Uh, It's very tricky. Um, They met when he was 24 and she was 23. Uh, As you say, they had this long period in which she remained married to her husband, John Taylor, uh, and looked after her children. She used to go on holiday with Mill. Um, It's not clear 
to many of those who have written about Mill, whether or not their relationship was ever physical, even after they were married. The evidence just isn't there. And the two of them played a major part in writing the autobiography. It's not just Mill's work, it's Harriet's work as well. And they were absolutely clear that they weren't going to tell everything. <laughs> so uh, there's a, a certain amount of kind of cover-up in it. You're also right to say that his relationship with his mother and his sister really was very badly damaged by this. Um, and But largely because of Mill. Mill just took deep offense at anybody who criticized him for his relationship with Harriet Taylor. Uh, he saw her, in many respects, he put her on a pedestal and he saw her as a kind of great luminary that if it hadn't been for 19th century conventions about women writing and so on, she would have been a philosopher in her own right uh, and we would still be reading her. Um, so she's really important, uh, but many of the aspects of their relationships remain deeply puzzling. Uh, it's, I mean, one example of that is Friedrich Hayek, the um, libertarian economist, uh, actually devoted a substantial amount of time and uh, produced a volume built on the letters between Mill and Harriet Taylor uh, in an attempt to try to understand the nature of the relationship. But even to him, it wasn't terribly clear you know, what exactly that, the nature of that relationship was. But clearly he had her up on this tremendous pedestal yeah. and um, idolised her, worshipped her. But it seems, it, there's very divided views, it seems, what her actual contribution was to what he offered on women's rights. Yeah. There seems to really be, have... it's, very, it's very hard to make a, uh, establish really what happened, isn't yeah. it? Uh, absolutely. We don't really have the evidence to make a judgment about how much she really contributed. Uh, and, um, I mean, Mill, in many respects, might have been trying to emphasize her contribution partly because of his, uh, his sort of sense of the extent to which his contemporaries continually minimized her, her contribution. And it is clear that they wrote together quite a lot. They made lists together of the works that they wanted to write. Uh, together. Uh, the fact that it all comes out under Mill's name rather than under Harriet's name is partly, uh, you know, literary executives, etc., etc., but it's also partly we just don't know what uh, what sort of level of involvement she she had with his writing, whether it was sort of he'd, he'd discuss things with her before and then go off and write, or whether the, the, the texts were really kind of sewn together out of be- sections that both of them were contributing. Can you talk me through Mill's ideas on punishment? Because that in some ways his ideas on punishment, well, are a little off trend, aren't they? They're absolutely off trend. Um, but again, you need to put him in context. What he was trying to say was that standing where he stood... Uh, in the 1860s, and he made the comments on punishment in a speech in Parliament when he was an MP. Standing from where he stood, it seemed to him that the way in which punishment was being employed was as a form of deterrence. If it's going to work as a form of deterrence, you need to think hard about who it's going to deter. He didn't think capital punishment or any form of punishment would really deter those who were committed to wrongdoing. So it becomes a question of how you most affect those who weigh up the pros and cons of things and could be dissuaded from certain courses of action by the penalties that are attached to them. Uh, And in that case, he said, well, if you have the death penalty, that will deter lots of people. But it will only deter lots of people, um, you know, insofar as they're clear that that's the result of their action. Uh, so he wanted to restrict the death penalty to a smaller number of cases because um, it, it, it was still sort of rather extensively used. But he also wanted to make sure that it was uh, something that uh, continued to have the deterrent effect that it was supposed to have. You know, what he didn't think was that it was so much worse to use the death penalty than it was to keep people locked up in prison for the whole of their lives uh, under appalling kind of conditions. That issue seems to me sort of uh, one that we continually face. We're not clear what we're doing in locking people away. Uh, We have different models and different expectations. Some of it's about punishment. Some of it's about rehabilitation. Some of you know, and we're not terribly clear about what we're doing. And Mills 
comments on punishment seems to seem to me at least, even though they're now outdated, to point to the fact that unless we're clear about exactly what we're trying to do uh, in this historical, particular historical context, then we'll end up creating a situation in which uh, the things that we think are going to work simply won't work. Do you think he was a better social activist than a political writer? And the reason why I'm asking you that is you're a professor of political science and you've read possibly all the best texts. So I'm just wondering, or is it actually fair to actually judge him or put one up against the other? And do you think you can actually do that? Uh, difficult to do with Mill. I mean, he, you know, uh, he was an activist. Uh, he was arrested in his sort of early 20s for distributing literature explaining birth control to uh, members of the working class and spent a night in the cells because uh, it was then kind of uh, um, forbidden. Uh, and all through his life, uh, he thought it was important to make contributions to a national debate. Uh, now, I mean, um, I mean, one sort of thought is that the 19th century debate really did matter, did change people's minds, did affect the way in which policy took place. Uh, he had real reservations about the way in which certain types of debate sort of developed. So he was, uh, one thing that he, he uh, attacked was the tendency to produce contraries, so order versus progress. Uh, he said, you know, he was sort of angry about that largely because you can't have one without the other. Uh, and the way in which the political system artificially produces contraries, uh, rather than thinking through the more kind of um, intricate problems that are associated in achieving both order and progress, though that seemed to him to be unacceptable. And that, I think, has continuing contemporary relevance. Political debate tends to be sloganeering. Uh, and Mill was very much against that, but was also living in a period in which you could still uh, get away from a certain amount of sloganeering and engage with others on the other side of the political spectrum and achieve the kinds of policies that Mill thought were um, uh, appropriate to the period. I'd question some of his ideas on the colonies. Yes, yeah, so he, uh, <laughs> he had a very 19th century view of the West as far in advance. Uh, of uh, many of the kind of colonial um, uh, administrations. And uh, he just didn't have the kind of reservations that we rightly have about uh, um, how we deal with uh, other countries. Um, his, he spent most of his life working for the East India Company. Uh, he ended up being chief examiner, which was effectively running um, the, the East India Company. So he had extensive paper experience uh, of managing uh, the East India uh, Company. Uh, and that, I think, did profoundly affect uh, the way in which he kind of thought about things. Um, but it is disappointing, though, isn't it, Mark? It is, yeah. No, it is disappointing. Um, uh, but again, uh, you have to ask the, the question, what is it? how far does his thought at that period match the, the conditions that he was dealing with? It's a mistake, I think, to take to Mill our sort of uh, sense of human rights and so on and say, look, um, colonial involvement is unacceptable and so on, partly because Mill's historical context was a very different one from ours. Uh, and like engaging with any uh, great dead political thinker, you have to deal with their ideas critically, um, I think the, the value of them is that they help us to think about issues, uh, partly by not providing us with you know, everything that we need to know in order to be able to answer them. We have to engage with them and think about the relevance of their ideas to, the, to our particular contemporary uh, situation. Last question, Mark, and I've saved the worst for last. Is utility the ultimate appeal on all ethical questions, as Mill so passionately argued? Do you think that still stands up? Uh, uh, OK, it's a very difficult question. And I think the one way to answer it that's in keeping with the spirit of Mill is to say yes. But you need to be very careful about what content you're giving to utility. If you put it in this way, is human flourishing in its widest possible sense and its greatest sort of possibilities of, of diverse experiences, is that the real objective? 
that we should be thinking of in the way in which we design political systems, in way, the way in which we design legislation, the way in which we uh, design sort of protections for individual liberty. If, is that the appropriate end? And that seems to me not a bad appropriate end to have. It's one that you can factor in things like environmental concerns, which weren't there for Mill. It's one that you can factor in a whole range of, of, of considerations. Uh, but it's a very, it's utility, as he says, in the very much broadest sense. And that was Professor Mark Fulp. John Stuart Mill on Liberty, Utilitarianism and other essays is published by Oxford World Classics and retails for in and around €11 in paperback. Now, before I wrap up, I have a handy little competition for you. The good people at Books Ireland are giving away one annual subscription to Books Ireland. So all you have to do is answer this fairly straightforward question and email talkingbooks at newstalk.com. Okay, so here goes. Name the Christmas themed tale which features in James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners. Yep, I think it's an easy one. So, first one past the post gets an annual subscription to Books Ireland. Best of luck. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. The music today comes from Max Ritter. I hope you liked it. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brennock who helped out with this week's programme and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's programme with some intriguing words from John Stuart Mill. I have learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than in attempting to satisfy them. Good night. Talking Books on Newsalk 106 to 108.